You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, we usually investigate stories of the strange, things like monsters and ghosts and aliens and UFOs and all of that good stuff, and usually we do, I promise. But if you're listening to this one, this is one of our stranger and slightly off-topic episodes, although it does deal with a gentleman who indeed has come over the over the decades, to believe many, many weird things mostly about himself. This is our second Hulk Hogan episode, a, a sequel, a long-awaited sequel to uh, a slightly silly episode we did back in the summer, just because, you know, we had been handling a lot of kind of heavy material, and I, I felt like just doing something a bit silly, a bit light for a change, uh, and not really thinking about whether or not we'd come back to the subject for more, but here we are, and um, primarily from demand from listeners. Uh, people have got in touch asking, where is episode two? I need to find out more about uh, Hulk Hogan. And uh, this is mostly about his first autobiography, Cough Cough, uh, which it sort of is. And uh, it's about, we in the first episode, we covered kind of his early life and training. Uh, in this episode, we're talking about his early days with the WWF, as it was called then. And along with me, once again, for the ride is my brother, Donald. He's now Dr. Donald Gill um, and knows a very great many things about uh, political science, but he also knows a great many things about uh, pretend pub fighting, uh, as we call wrestling sometimes. If this isn't ordinarily the sort of thing you take an interest in, please uh, do. I, I encourage you to stick around. Um, this is a little bit of a break from our heavier stuff. Go back and listen to episode one if you haven't. As always, uh, get in touch with us if you have any thoughts, any queries, any politely worded corrections on Twitter. As always, we are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So hope you enjoy this episode and watch out for those pythons, brother. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Right, so by popular demand, we are back with uh, the very long awaited part two of what did we call it? Uh, the fictional life of Hulk Hogan, I guess, uh, as part of our sort of ongoing fascination with narcissists, really, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and kind of observing what they do in, in the era of Trump. And, and this, this one is not a guy who's particularly covered himself with glory in, in these days. Is, I think it's fair to say. I think we should call this episode Hogan 2, The New Batch of Steroids. Oh, but like every, everyone was doing it, brother. I mean, you know, I, I didn't even know it was illegal. <laughs> Check it out in my 1.5 page chapter late coming up. <laughs> oh, no, look, the, the, the stock line that all the wrestlers of that era used was like, oh, when I started... Uh, I experimented with steroids and I realized that this wasn't for me and that I could get just as good of a pump, you know, with the real deal. Um, it's like, no, we, man. We, we did get a lot of uh, interest in the first Hogan episode and it's a bit off topic, but it's fun and silly and sometimes that's all you want. And this is going to cover, well, we'll see how much of his life we can cover. I, we, we only got about through half a page of my notes <laughs> in the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> because of your your vast knowledge of wrestling yeah one of my one of my great sources of shame in life is that i have a an ocean's worth of pro wrestling knowledge rattling around in my head and uh this in, is in at least episode, one venue for it we got kind of through hogan's early life and his early introduction to wrestling we're picking up here 
um, kind of about the time he starts joining up with the WWF as it was then. And we're going to, we're going to kick off straight away with an infamous chapter <laughs> called Bullet on my, uh, Bull's Eye on My Back. This is chapter 16. And this is the famous uh, 1.5 page chapter uh, in a book which is not replete with particularly long chapters. Now, I once asked friend of the show, Chris Joyce, uh, because it's, it's in fact his book and he had it at the time. I, I said, Chris, what is the shortest chapter in Hogan's book and how long is it? How short is it? And he reckoned it's this one and he counted the words. Now I might, I, I haven't counted the words, so I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be saying that he's wrong, but it looks to me like I'm just looking at it today. I think the shortest chapter is in fact, chapter 60, setting the record straight. <laughs> the first <laughs> sentence of which is, well, let me tell you what I think of Booker T. And, oh man. Yeah. I don't think so, that sounds like a part of Father Ted's golden cleric acceptance speech. <laughs> This, this looks like one page and uh, about a paragraph, which is about four lines long. But Chris did, um, he counted all the words and he says it's bullseye on my back, if I remember correctly. So I'm going to read a little bit of this and then you can tell me how, <laughs> how true you think this is. Uh, Hogan says, fame and success. I'm not going to do everything in the Hogan voice, just, just occasionally. Uh, fame <laughs> and success came with a price for Hulk Hogan. That meant being a target for every wrestler who wanted to make a name for himself. There were guys who had been in the wrestling business for 20 years and their biggest week had been $2,000. So when they got a chance to wrestle Hulk Hogan, should they have a nice match and do what they're supposed to? Or should they make a name for themselves by knocking his teeth out? And he goes on to say about like, what if they broke my arm or what if they, you know, broke my knee or something like that. And then he says, I knew what I was in for every night when I stepped into the ring and they would smile to me in the dressing room, but then they in the ring, they would try to stick their thumb into my socket. And he talks about how he he's doing all this, all, all these um, matches in, in Japan and South Africa and stuff. And the boss might tell everybody, oh, don't hurt anybody, but they wanted to hurt him as if it would somehow be good for their career. Uh, nobody else had that extra carrot hanging over their head. Take that guy out and you win yourself a pot of gold. So he's kind of emphasizing this to uh, make himself sound more important, I guess. Yeah, it's a weird one, right? So this, I think this is an important part of, of Hulk Hogan's uh, kind of personal or individual psychology is that he's, he's an intensely paranoid man. We talked about this a bit in the, in the part one episode, but like I, I'm, I think there probably might have been a couple of holdovers from an earlier time in pro wrestling where this idea of if you can kick the ass of the champion and kind of discredit them and falsify their claims to toughness that are supposedly represented by either the belt or a main event slot or something. Well, then you will kind of take on the legitimacy or the authenticity or authority um, that they previously had. But really by the, like Hulk Hogan is like to his credit, I suppose, for the most part, but also maybe if you're of a more old school mindset, like to his, like as a detraction on him, like he is, the singular figure who ushers in a completely different era in wrestling where it's kind of postmodern and ironic and winky winky nudge nudge and you know we all know this is fake but isn't it a bit of a laugh and like the the high point of kind of the um the rock and wrestling era in the wwf where you bring in cindy lauper and mr t and all that kind of time period like there's a lot of popular 
coverage, like in the in the kind of mainstream media of you know the first WrestleMania and the involvement of these celebrities like Liberace and Muhammad Ali, and they're like every single piece of mainstream media coverage is we all know this is fake, but looks like people seem to like it. Let's have a bit of a laugh at its expense, whilst also kind of you know acknowledging that it's a bit of a bit of fun and all that. So like the idea that Hogan would have been like again what they say in wrestling, like that people would have shot on him on the ring, right? Attempted to really um, uh, to beat him up or whatever. It's not entirely impossible that that happened once or twice, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence of it. And anyone who would have done that at that time would have been shooting themselves in the foot economically because Hulk Hogan was so obviously the golden goose that was going to take pro wrestling to the next level. And again, like they're going to be on wrestling cards that he's sold the tickets for. And so they're just destroying their own potential future paydays. But this is like, this is a re it seems to me at least based on, again, like I said, an unfortunate lifetime of watching this fraudulent fisticuffs that he is like deeply wedded to this idea that once it became clear that he was the top dog in wrestling, that everybody was out to get him. And that, you know, only through his, his, uh, his cunning and his guile <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and perhaps his legitimate toughness, which again, I don't think is real. Like, I think part of the reason why he's paranoid is one, like it is a kind of just an inherently paranoid business. And like we talked about in the previous episode on this, wrestlers tend to have a very, I don't know, problematic sense of their own individual identity because they don't know where the work begins and the, and the shoot or the work ends and the shoot begins. But also uh, because like your claim to fame or our legitimacy as the top dog is all, it's all fictional because everything is fictional. Like we can just craft a new narrative about no, actually everything we said about you isn't true and you're, you're in fact shit. And then someone else can take your spot. So that creates an inherently paranoid mentality because it's all just it's all the world of shadows on the wall of the cave there's no such thing uh you know as the world outside of the cave well <clears throat> skipping over a chapter where he meets his future wife and describes her as being like a thoroughbred horse with a nice ass we'll uh, <laughs> we'll breeze past that one um, well, you, you'll remember that um last episode as well we talked about how he did another book which was like my life outside of the ring and he kind of takes all the nice things he says about Linda in this book back in that. And <laughs> it was always a massive bitch. And she manipulated from, the, from him from the get-go. And they never had a good time. And he always knew she sucked. But he was just too much of a committed family man brother. She was always deep state, basically. <laughs> oh, totally. Um, so we, we, we finally get to, like, he meets Vince McMahon. He joins the uh, WWF. And he claimed, as you say, revolutionizes where wrestling is at and, and does help to bring it into um, this new era. But he also claims to invent um, wrestler entrance music. What do you think of that? Um, no, that's demonstrably <laughs> false. Um, he, I, he was part of a kind of an, an, a wave where, you know, people were starting to use rock songs and stuff like that. He definitely didn't do it first. So like the absolute first person to do it was the original Gorgeous George. Uh, probably in the 40s, if memory serves correct. And he used Pomp and Circumstance. That's the, uh, the tune that they play at um, high school graduations in the States and stuff. And that's, that's what Macho Man used to come out to. Macho Man was a big mark for Gorgeous George. It's the So anyway, Gorgeous George was the first one to do that. But then in the kind of like the rock and roll era, uh, some early uh, wrestlers who came out to, to live music or 
whatever. You had the fabulous Freebirds. They came out to Freebird by Leonard Skinnerd. Um, Kerry Von Erich, who uh, down in Dallas, Texas, he was called the Modern Day Warrior, and he used to come out to uh, Tom Sawyer by Rush because the first line in that song is Modern Day Warrior or something. Can't remember exactly. Hogan did come out to Rocky III's Eye of the Tiger pretty early in that process. But the idea that he was like, I know what I'll do to make myself different is total BS. Like, tell, tell us a bit about like Vince and the state that WWF was in at the time Hogan came in. So Vince had just bought the, the promotion from his father uh, very, very recently. Um, and his kind of like, the, he, I think he thought that the, the skeleton key to unlock a whole new kind of business um, in terms of uh, taking pro wrestling national was Hulk Hogan. And Hulk had already worked for Vince Sr. Uh, in the World Wide Wrestling Federation. And Vince McMahon Jr. would have been doing commentary and backstage stuff there. So he, he probably knew Hulk Hogan, but like, and Hulk Hogan had some of what would later make him a megastar, but really he kind of perfected the package in a combination of going over to Japan for New Japan Pro Wrestling. He did a bunch of matches there, notably with uh, Antonio Inoki, who is the kind of the, he was the founder of New Japan and kind of it's, um, what would you call it? Like the, the siren, the inspiration for the whole thing. He had a, a bizarre boxing slash wrestling match with Muhammad Ali in 1976. And he used to do a thing where he'd walk into the locker room and just slap people in the face to give them what he called the spirit of Inoki. Oh, goodness. <laughs> just, that's like the most Japanese thing ever. Just like, let me whack you in the face and now you've got some of my power. But uh, Hogan did a bunch of matches with him that kind of, you know, again, helped him kind of craft his in-ring style and character and all that. And he, Hogan was actually like a sensation in Japan. And uh, there's, there's this incredible song that was released for him. It's like this weird kind of early 80s disco um, where it's like Hogan-san, Hogan-san, Hogan-san is number one, Ichiban, Hogan-san. <laughs> it's incredible. And the name of his finisher in Japan, he didn't do the leg drop. He did like a running um, kind of double axe handle smash. Uh, and it was called the Axe Bomber. <laughs> but in Japan, I don't know, just because of the accent and the, the weird way in which English kind of transliterates into Japanese, where it was called the Axe Boomba. And... <laughs> There's some really funny interviews where Hogan is like, let me tell you something, dude. You're going to feel the wrath of the Axie Boomba. <laughs> but so he, he was kind of putting himself together, but really it was in the AWA um, in uh, Minnesota and that kind of general Midwest kind of area. We talked about this a bit in the first episode. Uh, Vern Gagne was the kind of the patriarch there. So um, I, have a, I have a bit here where he says, there in front of Vince McMahon Jr., uh, the Iron Sheik said that Vern Gagne, who I had just screwed over, had called the Iron Sheik the night before the match and offered him $100,000 to break my leg in the ring. Yeah, that's... I, 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 from, from what I can tell, that is in fact true. Like, because the Sheik was... Or Iron Sheik was close with Vern because Vern... Well, not Vern, but like Vern's minions trained Iron Sheik in the early 70s. Uh, over uh, out in the... The kind of the, the there's there's actually some amazing footage you can see it on YouTube of the wrestlers being trained in the AWA and they're just in like a busted out old woodshed somewhere in the woods in Minnesota or out by this place called Lake Minnetonka if you know where that is Kian I know you spent time in Minnesota I, I obviously haven't a clue but uh, 
and Shiki Baby is there with Ric Flair and a bunch of other fellas all getting trained by Vern. So like the idea that that Vern could have had the loyalty from Sheik to, you know, do something like that is it's not impossible. Um, but, you know, Sheik knew where his uh, his bread was buttered and he put Hogan over clean. And that was January 20, I don't know, third or fourth, something like that, 1984. Uh, I know that date, like, or at least the approximate date, because Hogan would always talk like, oh, it's the day Hulkamania was born. Because <laughs> he, he basically came in, he did a couple of dark matches and a couple of interviews, and then they sent him to Madison Square Garden to beat Sheik for the title almost instantly. And so, like, you know, there, there was no slow burn. There was no slow build. It was like, this is the guy we're putting him over in the absolute main spot. He is our kind of main uh, event attraction and in perpetuity. Uh, and that was kind of like the whole business then turned on its face towards this Hulk Hogan oriented, more kid friendly, more kind of like it, it slowly transitions, but the, the goal is there pretty, pretty early right away from the, um, or from, from January 84 to go into this Technicolor kid-friendly kind of presentation you know and and vince's big thing is like that his um his stewardship of the wrestling business from this time was like oh we wanted to take it out of the smoky uh um you know army lodges and bingo halls uh, where you'd have old grannies shouting at the wrestlers where we wanted to turn it into something that was more you wanted, TV you wanted it to look less like the british world of sport thing yeah yeah exactly <laughs> You know, just which, which was uh, defined by friend of the show Stokes as uh, that that wrestling that British wrestling show where Granny smoking cigarettes would be in the front of the audience. Yeah, and Big Daddy was the Big Daddy the and Giant Giant Tastex. I have a lot of yeah. stuff marked here, which I marked because at the time I felt it was like Hogan massively self-aggrandizing and making up bullshit in the name of his own sort of um, maniacal self-interest. But I have a feeling you're going to tell me. A lot, of, a lot of this is kind of true. Like, you know, he has a chapter called The Load, where he just talks about, like, having the load of the whole business on his shoulders and how in the old days, you know, maybe six or eight guys would be big stars and would be carrying this load. And now it was all on one guy, Mr. Hulk Hogan. And it's like, that. that is kind of true, isn't it? I mean, is that's how big he was at the time. Uh, he was definitely, like, a transcendently massive superstar. But like, you know, with that load came an awful lot of perk, perks as well. So like, you know, they would do his matches in the middle of the card so he could leave early and stuff. Um, you know, and part of that was so that because he had to go to the next place because they wanted him on as many shows as they possibly could. But like, you know, it's kind of like you get lightning in a bottle or whatever. You're going to, you're going to, you know, you buy the ticket, take the ride. As well, here's a good as story says. from... And like, he from, was going to make sure to... From the same chapter where... Um, He's 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 gotten into a a feud with a guy called uh, Harley Race. I don't know if he's a known quantity yeah. or not. Yeah, Harley Race is a legend is a legendary figure. Right. So Harley Race has it in for Hogan, and he said, uh, "When I heard this, I had no doubt that Harley would show up on the night." So I went across the street to a place called the, the Rusty Scupper, which sounds delightful. <laughs> drank a bunch of hard liquor, and ate my final supper. <laughs> I knew that Harley Race was a shooter, a hooker, a guy who could break bones, and I was going to be in for the fight of my life. Later on at the arena, I was sitting down on the toilet when one of the British Bulldogs, Davy Boy Smith, came in. Oh, yeah. Uh, where is he from in, in the UK? Do you know? What kind of an accent has he? 
He has a, a Northern English accent. So he's like, from, uh, like he's, I, I think he's from, he's from Yorkshire, but he would have like kind of grown up uh, in, in wrestling terms at a place called the Snake Pit in Wigan. <laughs> the Wigan so he, Snake Pit. That's where uh, Billy Robinson was from as well. So he was the guy actually who did a lot of the training for uh, Vern Gagne. And, so it, it, so it, this is the, the British Bulldog who we know from the, 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 the story about being on coke and, and disappearing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm fucked, Mr. Hitman. <laughs> fucked, Mr. Uh, so he, he comes in and tells Hogan that this fellow, Harry Race, is coming to beat him up. So Hogan says, I jumped up, pulled up my pants without even wiping my ass, <laughs> ran out to confront him. <laughs> it's like, thanks for that detail. The son of a bitch stared me down and said, I ought to break your goddamn legs. I thought we were going to fight. But the next thing I knew, he stuck out his hand and said, I admire you for what you've done to the wrestling business. And by the way, do you think you can get me a job? And then they're best friends. And he talks about how like everybody hated him, but actually they thanked him because of what he was doing for the business and all this merchandising, which meant that now they could sell. Instead of just selling hot dogs and beer, we were all selling t-shirts and can holders with our pictures on them. They were capitalizing on the same consumer impulses we were. And I mean, that is something he did lots of, wasn't it? He, I mean, selling himself was one of his big things. And I suppose... That, that transition you talked about did, did happen in a big way. Yeah, and, and like, so the, one of the main reasons why he had a falling out with Vergani and the AWA was that Hogan started to um, sell T-shirts saying Hulkamania and, you know, Hulk going for the title and this kind of stuff. He was making them up himself and selling them out of the boot of his car after the shows in the car park and stuff. And uh, Vern said, you're not allowed to sell T-shirts. I'm going to sell T-shirts for you and I'm going to take 90% of it. And Hulk said, like, well, get the fuck out of here. So then when Vince kind of said to him, like, you know, we're going to make you the focal point of our new operation. We're going to take it nationwide and we're going to, like, merchandise this to kids and we'll cut you in handsomely. Like, that was absolute music to Hulk's ears. And, you know, the thing about Harley Race was that he was kind of, um, he was he had been around for a good while already. He had been kind of a, a very well-traveled champion of the NWA. And Harley Race was, like, Hulk is not, you know, blown smoke there when he says that that Harley Race was a shooter. Um, like, if you see a picture of Harley, does Race, that mean that like he would he would take it, make it real, and actually get in feuds with people and beat them up? He, he, no, not so much that. Like, I'm sure he, he was like probably like a real professional in the sense that he would work matches. But it was that like if someone tried to fight him, he could actually kick some ass. He was what they call like there's this there's this bizarre phrase that actually gets a lot of traction in the wrestling business, which is legit tough guy because everyone is playing a tough guy right because yeah. again it's a phony business and harley race is one of these guys that was like you know he was a real uh a real badass legit badass is actually the the term that's that's more often used now that i say it. and like if you look at a picture of harley race from around this time he's got like this kind of like almost curly um afro like hair he has the lemmy beard um, which Triple H tried to do later on in the early 2000s, and it was one of the most grotesque things I've ever seen. And he has like the kind of Popeye forearm tattoos, like way before tattoos were a thing. And like you had to be a, a character of genuine ill repute to, to get a tattoo. Um, Harley Race got those kind of tattoos. Uh, so he looks like a sailor, like he looks like Popeye or something, makes it like a badass Popeye. So, so when he went, if he went in there to say to Hulk Hogan, like, I'm going to kick your ass, <laughs> like Hulk Hogan's bigger than him. He's probably stronger than him in the, in the gym, but he's not tougher than him. Uh, Hogan then talks about um, like that period when 
Vince McMahon and the WWF is like gobbling up all the other smaller companies that were in the old um, territory system. And he, he yeah. just he just kind of breezes over it. He says like, eventually a lot of the small territories did close up. They just couldn't compete. And he, he's making out like they just weren't as good as, as WWF. And it, it's the classic like unfettered capitalist thing of like getting, getting to a monopoly, which now we're at the state where they've bought out everybody. There's nothing else. There's no predators. And they can kind of do whatever they like, but also there's no there's no real alternative to what, what is now WWE. Well, there, there, there's there's some competition now because uh, another billionaire started up a company there about two years ago called AEW. Oh yeah, but but, but, but Vince got twenty years unchallenged, and the big yeah. kind of thing that happened in that time period was that uh, TV ratings just declined and declined and declined. Um, but one of the very few things that's perceived to kind of still be able to draw in live appointment viewing is um, sports. sports. Yeah. Yeah. And so basically like they used to get by primarily on selling tickets to live events and now they, they don't even do live events anymore, obviously because of COVID, but they'd cut back massively before that anyway. And they make almost all of their money on TV revenues. And so right. like they, they get such an unbelievably inflated like price for their product that they're like the kind of preeminent wrestling journalist, Dave Meltzer always says that they have an idiot proof kind of business. Like they can book horribly. They can fail to make stars for years on end. Um, and they can concoct horrible storylines, et cetera. And they're still going to get the money from the TV stations. Yeah. And so they're, like, they're, they're good. I've, I've heard it say that they, in, in strict numbers, they make more money now than, or at least Vince makes more money now than he ever has, but and way way more. Way like more. wrestling is is way less relevant to any sort of mainstream than it ever, you know, compared to in the eighties or again in the turn of the millennium. And, and and like the most damning thing is that when they do a couple of bad weeks of ratings in a row, they do these legends reunion shows oh to no. try to pop a rating, and they'll bring back all the old fossils and. The really interesting thing is that the, the demographic of viewer that, that spikes when they bring back the old legends, like especially Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, Steve Austin, etc., is not the actual people who were alive when those guys were in their prime, but instead it's teenagers. So weird. So which so means like that they've just like, given up on trying to produce. Although, I mean, didn't, I, I can't remember if we mentioned this in the, in the last episode or not, but there's this perception, isn't there, that... Um, Hogan doesn't want to produce any more superstars because they just leave and they go and make movies instead after a while because you can only wrestle for so long. Oh, Vince, you mean, rather yeah. than Hogan? Sorry, Vince, yeah. Uh, like, he's not, he doesn't want another Stone Cold. He doesn't want another John Cena. They just... Well, he wants, he wants the brand to be bigger than any one individual. Yes, um, because then he's not so tied he, to them. He's not, they don't have any power over him. Yeah, he does, he does want someone that can do business like John Cena or Hulk Hogan or whatever, but he doesn't want to be dependent on them um, in ways that like, again, like if they leave his, his, you know, his business collapses. Maybe I've, I've, been, just, I've been listening to people who used to be fans who are now disappointed with how it is. And that's one reason they've come up with to explain the consistent lack of satisfaction that all fans seem to get out of it nowadays. Yeah. I don't know. I just think they've just been booking really badly for so long. And like I said, because the way that the money, comes in from the TV uh, stations and whatnot, like they don't suffer any consequences. So there's, you know, like once in a while, the ratings get so bad that they, they attempt something of a, of a shakeup, but it almost always reverts back to 
a pretty bland and, and forgettable uh, meme. Well, he, well, just to cut back to the book, when Hogan is talking about the period when the dub is, is on the up, he says, um, the same thing happened with the wrestlers themselves. The guys who survived were the ones who really deserved to survive. The main event guys who knew their craft and worked hard at it. Instead of making 50 or 60 grand a year, they were making a couple hundred grand a year. But a lot of underneath guys, guys who would work their job down at Kmart all week and then go wrestle at the Coliseum on the weekend, started to disappear. It was like when God flooded the world and the only, only the good people on Noah's Ark survived. We flooded out all the beer bellies and the guys who never went to the gym. <laughs> yeah, well, you see, Hogan is kind of conflating two things there, I think, in a, in a fairly distorted way in the sense that like, so I think with this quote, Hogan is kind of conflating the idea that wrestlers could be either big charismatic, larger than life personas that pull in audiences attention or they can be like actually good workers in terms of like creating a compelling match in the ring. And the thing is that the people who got on top during the Hogan generation, for the most part during the rock and wrestling era were not the good workers, but they were the good bodies. Well, at least a a type of good body. Again, we talked about this a little bit last time that Hogan is like, Oh, all the beer bellies, were cast aside. I know, and then half the time he's talking about himself drink, drinking all the time. Like he wants to be this party <laughs> guy, but also, oh no, I'm a, I'm a professional. You know, I represent the professionalization of this, what, you know, what used to be like a weekend hobby. Well, it's like, do you know, you know the way um, sometimes you see someone who doesn't necessarily look like they're in shape, but actually they're just like unbelievable, like beastly strong, kind of like, you know, what they sometimes call farmer strength or yeah. whatever. So like, that's kind of like what Harley Race looked like. Harley Race had big shoulders. He didn't have like veiny muscular arms or whatever, they but didn't like- They necessarily sure. have to be athletic. It just, as long as they were big and strong and charismatic. And yeah. They do it. And, and they looked kind of like menacing and badass and, and those kinds of things. And see, the thing is that with the steroids that they were all taking at that time, and it became a kind of a, a race to the bottom in terms of like who could get more gigantic and more and more gigantic. Like for example, the British Bulldog David Boy Smith is uh, instructive in this regard in the sense that he started out in the early to mid 80s as like a very muscular large guy and then by the early 90s he's like he looks comically absurd like he looks like a Mr. Stay Puff almost. I mean the guy I always remember from a later era as representing that over the top style was, was Scott Steiner. Oh yeah, the, was, the genetic freak. Yeah, he was a freak. Like, he was freaky looking. He, he, he would say, big pop, pop, I got my freaks and my peaks. And then he would flex his biceps, which like were His biceps absurd. were the size of his head and he had a big head. <laughs> and they, But they were pointy. Like he had bicep peaks that actually looked like a mountain almost. So uh, and in the book, I've got this wonderful a picture of a shockingly young Vince McMahon. He's still got black hair standing in front of a, a poster of Hulk Hogan in, in the 80s, I presume. And um, the, the book says, Hogan is talking and he says, but I was reaching out beyond that demographic. I was getting to people who would never set foot in a wrestling arena. Vince told me, it isn't just wrestling anymore with you, Terry. You're entertaining people. It's uh-huh. a sport, but it's also entertainment. It's sports entertainment. <laughs> it's one of the, the great kind of uh, compound words ever. <laughs> sports entertainment and this was used actually by vince as uh part of the reason why he shouldn't have to pay taxes or be regulated like a regular sport because it's not sports it's sports and entertainment hogan goes on to say though this is such a genius moment because this signifies the change between 
you know, sweaty guys in a dingy sports hall with the grannies smoking cigarettes and Shane getting rid of that image and going into the, oh, this is an exhibition that families can go to and they'll buy way more merchandise and buy more tickets. Yeah, and I, and I think that, like, in fairness to Vince, he, he, he pulled that off very, very intelligently. Uh, it worked for, you know, not just the 80s generation, but so many of those people stuck around in through the 90s and all that. And I don't know why, but, like, for, just for a huge number of people, like, the fact that wrestling's fake just doesn't matter. You know, it's just like... It's, like it's, theater, it's, isn't it, or something like that? I, I, but for the people, you know, for whom it does matter, the comparison to theater doesn't work at all. You know, like, you mm. like a classic point made in the schoolyard when someone makes fun of wrestling for being fake and you have to think, it's like, well, you like movies, don't you? And you know, they're not real. It's just like, that holds no water with the people who are just like, yeah, but wrestling presents itself as real. And it's like, but so do movies. Yeah. You know, but it's just, it, for some reason, uh, the, the people who think wrestling is fake, like that's this kind of silver bullet that just kills any appeal stone dead. Um, but yeah, you know... <laughs> I think it was just going that way anyway. Now, one of the really interesting things is that, like, again, if you go back, you know, to the absolute dawn of modern professional wrestling, all the press coverage know that it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, funny business, phony sham. Um, it was, there was never really a time where kayfabe, like, truly ruled to the point where people were astonished to find out that this was a, a put on. Um, so like for kids, like young enough kids, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But like, you know, can you think of, I mean, I suppose we'd, we'd have to go back to the 50s or 60s maybe to, 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 you know, to really test this hypothesis, if you will. But like, as, as, as far back as I can remember knowing anything about wrestling, I can remember people telling me that it was fake. <laughs> yeah, you didn't always believe it when you were very small. <laughs> Yeah, I was the, well, I, like they, they often say that the key to kind of making it as a wrestler is that you convince people who know that everything else on the show is fake, but maybe your stuff is real. Right. You know, like, so the, like people have often made the argument that in the 90s, um, uh, Stone Cold was a success because people genuinely believed that he hated Vince McMahon. Yeah. I can imagine and that, that. And, and, and that Vince hated him and that Stone Cold was in fact raising hell on Vince's show. <laughs> With uh, trucks full of milk. <laughs> uh, the, the milk, the milk was a uh, Kurt Angle. It was uh, oh, Stone, Cold, yeah, Stone right. Cold would do the Steve Weisers. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm conflating two, two things from, from about the same era. And um, anyway, in the book, right, Hogan goes on to write the first WrestleMania, which is of course, genius move by Vince to, to up his game and, and put wrestling and his company on the world stage. And um, he's, he, Hogan has to do a lot of promotion alongside Mr. T for this. Yeah, you know what's really um, very interesting about this is two, two things. So one is that Vince basically gambled, the, the, uh, like gambled everything on WrestleMania. Uh, it was the first kind of major wrestling pay-per-view. Um, and if it had failed, most people think that Vince would have gone out of business. So that's the fact that WrestleMania was a success is what made everything else possible. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is that when, when Hogan did Rocky three, obviously Mr. T was in it, but he was an unknown then. Uh, and kind of like that made his name. But then by the time uh, WrestleMania one came around in 1985, not only had Mr. T kind of, you know, caught fire through Rocky, Rocky three, but he'd also been in the A team for a couple of years. So it was almost like, Hulk Hogan helped Mr. T get famous in Rocky Three, and then Mr. T helped 
kind of push WrestleMania over the top uh, in, in 1985. It's very, well, very interesting. Hogan sure dunks on Mr. T a lot in this chapter. He makes him out to be like whiny and lazy and he's bitching all the time. And they have to go, they have to, go to this event. I, I have no idea whether that's true or not, but they have to go to this like kids event to, to represent the, the, the event, the WrestleMania. And he says, so we showed up at the Spectrum and all these kids were sitting on the floor. Mr. T starts talking to them. And the first thing out of his mouth was, what are you kids doing here? You're supposed to be in school. What the hell is wrong with you missing school to come and see Mr. T and Hulk Hogan? <laughs> he hammered these kids. Finally, one kid raised his hand and said, Mr. T, you're scaring us. You're being mean. I ain't being mean. I'm just telling you the way it is. Mr. T always tells us the way it is. So then Mr. T storms out and, and Hogan has to save the day by saying, oh, it's okay, kids. Mr. T's just excited about WrestleMania. He's really a great guy. Give me all your papers and I'll sign them. So again, you know, uber good guy, Mr. Hulk Hogan. I've just, I've just skipped a bit actually where he goes to children's hospitals and gets them all to believe in Jesus and the parents are totally okay with that every single time and it was all wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think Mr. T like, was and remains a total dose. Um, he got inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame a couple of years ago and he gave like, an unbearably long speech where he just basically talked about how everybody should respect their mothers. I just like would not stop talking about people's mothers, and so much so that they actually they played Kane's music, and then Kane came out not in costume, just like in his tuxedo or whatever, and just like pushed Mr. T away. Jeez, it was such a cringe. Like the speech was just going on forever and ever and ever, and then Kane's music comes, and it's not like a dramatic run, and it's just like a he just shuffles him away. Okay, here's another bit of uh, of Hogan's like intense love for the Lord, right? He's <laughs> we built up a storyline in which Andre was getting jealous of me. Things were starting to heat up at a TV taping in my hometown of Tampa, where I was doing an interview with Rowdy Roddy Piper. Andre came out in the middle of it and challenged me to a match. He reached up and ripped the crucifix right off my chest and threw it on the ground. I had some mentholatum. Do you know what that is? No. He, he, he says it's, it's some substance that he put on his finger to stick in his eye to make it look like he'd started crying. And hell, I tried to stick in my eye, but I was so scared I missed my eye and hit my eyebrow instead. But it was cool because when he ripped the cross off, his fingernails scratched my chest and blood came pouring out. When I picked up the cross, a wave of emotion came over me and the tears started to come out without even the mentholatum. I didn't expect that to happen, but it's a weird thing to have your cross ripped off. This, that, is, that is like a very famous moment. And he didn't, like, I wouldn't say blood poured out. He just kind of, you know, he, he, uh, he uh, grazed him and there's just a little trickle, but it, it, it did add to the kind of the, I don't know, the, the, cer the ceremony of the moment or whatever. Um, and one thing that they were actually very good at in those days uh, of wrestling was like making little moments matter. And so like, it's not a big deal really that, that you know, he ripped the cross off and we've seen, you know, 40 million wrestling contract signings where people are <laughs> smashed over the head with XYZ, thrown through 50 tables or whatever. Back then, like things were, obviously the characters were massive and the personas were larger than life and all the rest of it. But the kind of the little scenarios were often actually more understated. And so, you know, Hogan did a good job selling that as a, as a kind of um, a really profound symbolic outrage representative of the fact that, you know, these two guys had been close um, and best friends and all that, even though they had feuded, you know, in the kind of, in the prehistory, in the pre-Hulkamania 
WWF, they had had a bunch of matches and in Japan too and stuff, but that's all, you know, that doesn't count. So now it's like, this is all fresh, brand new. And this all leads up, of course, to the WrestleMania three main events or in 1987 now where they do uh, Pontiac Silverdome in Detroit, uh, Michigan. And, you know, they like to say it was 93,000. It wasn't. One of the funniest things is like, there's so, there's so many people who like, they imbibe and digest and kind of internalize the WWE narrative, you know, the Vince spin on history, which is like, it, this is, it's total Stalinism. Like, you know, this is the official history. And if you, if you contravene it, like you'll go, you'll be sent to the gulag. And so every time that anybody ever tries to say like, this is the real number of tickets that were sold for WrestleMania three, you'll have these party loyalists who will step in and they're just like, they have a demented singular passion for, representing like the Vince fake number of attendees but that was it was a good match and again part of the whole gimmick again like prehistory doesn't exist etc was that Hogan went for the body slam (laughs) he's talking about uh the silver dome and they're asked to cancel the show and Vince says uh why the promoter says because the rolling stones are going to be here the week before you and the pope is going to be here the week after there isn't enough money in the marketplace for people to buy tickets for all the events. But Vince was willing to roll the dice. We're not cancelling. The Stones came in and sold 88,000 tickets. Not bad. But Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan did even better. We drew almost 94,000 people. The Wrong. Pope, God bless him, only filled 80,000 seats. No. It was okay. I was preaching the gospel in the ring that day anyway, so whoever came got their dose. <laughs> I got a dose, all right. <laughs> Uh, the Pope, the Pope, absolutely <laughs> sold more. Like one context. thing that does ring true in the book is his friendship with Andre. Yeah, it's, it seems like An- it's, it seems like Andre liked him. If Andre didn't like you, like he would very much punish you. Like he used to hate Macho Man, he beat the shit out of him <laughs> and stuff. Um, but the whole like so the big the big mythos around this particular match, which I'm sure you have it in the book, there is. Um, Hogan didn't know whether or not Andre would let him win, which is obviously false. And then he didn't know whether or not uh, Andre would allow him to body slam him, which again, of course, yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> the, way that, the way that he tells it, I'm sure it's in the book there, is that yeah, he does, yeah. in, in, the, in the ring, Andre just kind of spontaneously yeah. said to him, slam me, boss. As if you wouldn't have planned that, something like with somebody that size... Yeah, like, I can't remember, is it Hogan or, or someone else, but the, the story, I'm pretty sure it's Hogan says, the story goes that, like, he wrote out on le- yellow legal pad paper, like, here's yeah. what we're going to do in the match. But then there's, he left the kind of the final uh, sequence empty because he's just, oh, brother, I just, I didn't know if he'd have the respect for me, brother. <laughs> yeah, and he, he, again, he makes it all about him. Like, you know, he respected me so much that he let me do this thing to get over. Yeah. Uh, I mean... I, no one Andre, had ever done this before. Andre could barely stand up at that stage. Like, he was so crocked. Do you know, like, if you have um, giantism or whatever nowadays, they do something to the gland that, you know, secretes the hormone to make you continue to grow. So, like, you can, you still will be larger than um, you might have been otherwise, but you don't continue to grow and grow and grow. It was like Andre was just like, he was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, so he was just like, he was fully fucking crocked and he was in like unbearable pain and misery all the time. And he'd be drinking like, he'd be drinking full slabs of beer just to go to sleep, you know? 
There's a chapter here called Hulkamania Runs Wild on TV, where he talks about his uh, his cartoon Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. And it's uh, class. The only quote uh, that, that he lies about it here. There's a there's a stone cold lie where he says, "Quote: uh, Kids loved it. Parents loved it." <laughs> I have a feeling that's a lie. <laughs> yeah, it's a very chimpo um, '80s TV show. Like it's. It looks like, like the- Anna Barbera with that really limited style of animation. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's minimal effort put into it. It's very much like just we're going to, you know, get this done as quickly as possible and just, you know, throw it at the kiddies. Not, not like if you look at even something like He-Man now, there's, there's there are degrees to which the animation is kind of phoned in and stuff like that, but it has a, a real charm to it uh, and stuff that, that this show doesn't have. Like it's way cheaper than that. But it's a fun time in the same chapter he talks about uh, Dolly Parton and how she wanted to make a music video with Hogan in it and the song is called Headlock on My Heart and the lyrics oh, are no. he had a headlock on my heart it was a takedown from the start and it never happened <laughs> probably because Hogan can't do headlocks or takedowns he also talks here about um going to Japan to shoot um, advertisements and, and presuming that nobody in America or Europe would ever find <laughs> out about it, which was a bit of a thing in those days. Oh, and, yeah. Um, there's, there's some great stuff to, to see on YouTube with both uh, Hogan and, and Schwarzenegger that we're fond of. <laughs> <What is Yeah. laughs> is it? Was, so I think it, was, it was like 93 or something when Hogan did the, the... Is it for air conditioning or something? What is it? Or, yeah, where he's, he's, he's singing a song about the days of the week. What <laughs> <laughs> a baby... He's on, he's like in this kind of stylized heaven, like with clouds in space. Yeah, and there's a ba- there's a baby sitting on a cloud, and then he sings, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. <laughs> a Schwarzenegger did another crazy one for like energy drinks or something around the same time. <laughs> yeah, and his oh, eyes are like exploding. Well, look, worth looking up on YouTube. Yeah, I think uh, Hogan would go to Japan like uh, here and there during this kind of classic WWF run, but really. Not so much. Like his, his kind of his uh, heyday in Japan was in the early 80s. He then talks about a, a film called No Holds Barred. Now, I've seen a few Hogan movies. and Have you seen No Holds Barred? Oh, I sure have. That's, <laughs> so that's his first one. And this was made with Vince. Like Vince... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's some great stuff here about Hogan and Vince growing out during the making of this film. Yeah, I think, I think there's... Uh, some people seem to think that this is the peak of the, the Hogan-Vince friendship. And that kind of after this is when uh, Vince starts to think, all right, maybe we need to replace Hogan and get someone younger in. So we talked about that last episode. Like that's really the ultimate warrior kind of experiment. In do you mean, 19, do you think there was ever a time when like they actually were friends or was it always business? Because they both always come across as such business orientated guys. It's hard to imagine any of them actually feeling hurt, you know, when they have one of their periodic breakups. So I, it's hard to tell. And I don't, I like, I think, you know, we have these, uh, there, there's, I'm trying to think of how, how to say this now. So I don't want to um, cast things that I know are, you know, part of Hulk and, and Vince's personalities now, back to them then, right? They might've been different. So I, 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 can, I, can, I would say that probably chances are uh, Vince, Vince's psychology hasn't changed massively between let's say late eighties and now. Whereas I think Hogan really, you know, his, the, the core psychosis at the heart of, of his kind of mentality 
was probably developed after the first time Vince decided, like, you're no longer... I also think Hogan has had genuine sort of born-again experiences and, and then sort of, like, weird New Age ones where he was into, like, <laughs> the secret and stuff. And yeah. I, I think that's maybe genuine. Uh, I think he feels it as genuine. <laughs> okay, let's not oversell that. So <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think that you just Hogan has been caught out publicly a bunch of times for being a bit of a shit, and so there has to be then some sort of public facing, um, you know, what's the word like uh, attempt at contrition and all that. But like, I think probably in the late '80s, Vincent Hogan were thick as thieves because they were making money hand over fist together. Everything they tried worked. Hulk was like just totally in rhythm with Vince's macro vision for the company and, and again, like reshaping the whole thing as entertainment. And really they were having like, you know, success after success after success, you know, like WrestleMania five was with Macho Man was a, there was one of the best, you know, kind of, it was almost a full year long story where Macho Man and Hulk Hogan worked together. Then Macho turns on Hogan, turns heel and they have a good match well, here's what the two lads were doing when they were on the set of uh, No Holds Barred. Skipping a short scene where um, Hogan finally breaks the climactic battle scene while sitting again on the toilet and suddenly inspiration comes to him and he runs out of there without wiping his ass and, you know, has Vince, like, script the whole thing for him. And he, he says, when we were finished working our 18... This is, like, their schedule during making the film, according to him. When we finished working our 18-hour days and we were ready to drop... We would go train at Lee Haney's Animal Kingdom in Atlanta. Uh, he was a, a six-time Mr. Olympia. And when we were done training, usually at about three o'clock in the morning, we'd pop the trunk of our car and drink a beer. Vince would call it our heart attack beer. We would drink it to calm our nerves. Then we'd go to sleep for three or four hours, be back on the set at 6 a.m. We were like cyborgs, brother. Sleep was our enemy. We would just charge the battery in our forearm and keep going. I, I think that's may, probably a little bit less hyperbolic than some of the other stuff that he says in the sense that like, I think that at that time himself, himself and Vince were just like mainlining coke or hoofing back <laughs> nonstop. And, you know, I, I can imagine that they were running themselves ragged. Most people that, I mean, I've never made a movie, but like, I think it is, you know, for, for almost everybody who does it, like these really, really long jam packed days, you've got a limited schedule and all this kind of stuff. And I would imagine that given the kind of amateur nature of that film, they were probably writing and rewriting it as it was being made. So I don't, and, and I don't doubt that they would do midnight workouts and all this kind of stuff. And they were, you know, again, but I'd say like the, the part of the, the jigsaw puzzle that he's intentionally omitting there is that they were like absolutely <laughs> getting regular shipments from Bolivia of the marching dust that powered the whole endeavor. Um, at this that, point, movie, that, that movie is really, really worth a watch. Like, it's is, is it better dark. than Mr. Nanny and Suburban Commando and that kind of shit? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's like it, he plays basically himself. He's called Rip, and it's it's funny. It's like they he's he's there, there's an evil television company that tries to like pull him away, and when he doesn't want to sign a contract with their new TV thing, they basically decide like they're going to try and destroy him. And there's a bunch of other wrestlers in it, like uh, Stan Hansen and Terry Funk and a couple of other guys. But it's just like, it's peak late 80s schlock um, in terms of the aesthetic. And you know you know who's in it, who's a good fun as well, is uh, the evil TV executive who's trying to like, you know, destroy Hulk Hogan is played by Kurt Fuller. And he's Russell from Wayne's World. Oh. Remember him? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Rob Lowe's sidekick. That's right. Yeah. Um, and and so he's he's completely over the top. Um, and they draft in this big kind of gigantic uh, cross-eyed black dude called Zeus. To uh, or he's called Zeus in the movie. Is the name of the actor was Tiny Lister. And he was later in a bunch of those Ice Cube comedies, the Friday movies. Oh, no. And he just died actually very recently. But then a- after this movie, they brought him in for, I think, two matches maybe in the WWF. But I mean, he was basically immobile because he was like six foot nine or 10 or something. And I think his knees were crocked from playing basketball. But he had like a very memorable look and they, they shaved like a Z into his head because <laughs> he was Zeus. Um, um, next up in, in the chronology, he kind of starts talking about uh, Randy Savage, Master Man Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior. And I don't want to repeat ourselves because we actually, we spoke slightly out of con- out of continuity last episode about uh, when he has to give the belt to the Ultimate Warrior and everybody oh, yeah. cheers him anyway. And it's, you know, Vince was wrong to try and take the belt off and blah, blah, blah. But like, what was Hogan's relationship with those two guys in general? Um, I think he, he had a kind of a, a topsy-turvy relationship with Macho Man. Uh, I think they, at some, some periods in time, they were like absolutely very, very close. They lived close together. They would, they would in fact train together. And their families were friends like Linda Hogan or Linda Balea and uh, Elizabeth were, were close as well and stuff. But I think Macho Man was also an in, like a hyper-intense and insanely paranoid guy. And so he would go through periods of just like detesting Hogan and thinking that like everything that Hogan did was out to get him and all this kind of stuff. And I'm sure that was only because that was partially happening. <laughs> That's because he was the cream of the crop. Well, Macho Man was in fact the cream of the crop. Um, just... Is he still well regarded today? Or like, I, I don't, I mean, knowing little about the technical aspect of wrestling, all I can go on really is, is their persona. And obviously he's such a, <laughs> he's such a goofy character. Yeah, right. So Randy Savage had the like otherworldly charisma and incredible promo abilities. I and presume all that. also but, a mega coke fiend. Oh yeah, oh yeah. What's what story did you tell me about two two lads escaping from like a Vince imposed weight loss thing or? What <laughs> well, was that story? Is that, that's 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 a, that Macho that's Man? The, no, no, no. Macho Man was always in good shape. Uh, well, that's a completely different story. But ba- basically, in the mid '90s, two wrestlers, Big Van Vader or Vader and Yokozuna. <laughs> were tipping the scales at about 500 or 600 pounds. I think Vader might have been close to 500 and Yokozuna was well over 600. And they couldn't, there was like still a few places in the US where state state athletic commissions had to sanction the wrestlers to be allowed to actually go into the ring. That's what that's, so that's like avoiding that and paying the the taxes. That's the sports entertainment thing. That's the sports entertainment stuff. But there were still a few kind of places where if they were going to have events, there would the state athletic commission had to inspect the wrestlers and all this. And so these two guys were basically like, they were huge risks of having heart attacks in the ring because they were just so gigantic. And so they were sent up to new Haven, I think, which is where he, uh, like, I mean, as if, as if the paperwork would allow Vince to get in trouble for that. Right. I mean, he, I, uh, he had it. Doesn't he, I mean, still, doesn't he have everybody as a contract worker kind of a job? Where yeah. Independent of anything independent contractor yeah. yes there's always the ability to Total say well. but uh they were sent up to i think it was yale or maybe princeton i'm not sure i can't remember now just off the top of my head but some sort of specialist weight loss clinic and so jim ross 
the famous commentator Baga Jr. He, he he was the uh, the like talent talent relations liaison. So he was uh, going up to the university weight loss clinic and checking in on the lads. And so after like the first week, they, they were down a couple of pounds. Everything was going well. And then he went back the next week, and they had gained a few pounds. And then he went back the week after that, and they were above the weight that they had started at. And so he says, like, what the hell is going on here? And what was turned out to be happening was that they were going along with all of the weight loss, you know, exercising and diet stuff during the day. But then they were breaking out at night and going to drive through fried chicken restaurants, parking in the, in the car park and just like chowing down on entire buckets of fried chicken and stuff all night. <laughs> they come and like mysteriously reappear in their beds again in the morning to have their, their celery sticks and broccoli and do, I don't know, water aerobics for a few hours. Um, but go back to Macho Man. Yeah, go on. So Hogan was not actually, especially during his kind of peak years, he was not actually a good wrestler. He had the same match all the time. It just made, like he'd usually get beaten up for a few minutes. Uh, he'd do like a couple of very limited moves and then he'd, he'd hulk up. He'd kick out of someone's finisher. He'd shake his head, kind of stomp around the ring. He would... Point, yeah, point in someone's face and go, no. <laughs> and then he'd do three punches. <laughs> the crowd would count along. And he'd give him an Irish whip into the ropes and stick his leg up in the air. Like, you know, a big boot is sort of, yeah. like, it's supposed to be a kick. This was just like they come off the rope and they just like run into his boot, which has been held aloft. And then usually he'll slap his hands three times while nodding to the crowd, like, oh, brother, it's going to happen. Now I'm going to pin him. <laughs> and then he'll do the leg drop. Um, the atomic leg drop he'd do with a little run up and in fairness he always like would do a proper jump up where his he'd go like his legs would go right up into the air into a, like almost like a right angle and he would land on his ass like on his tailbone his coccyx or whatever which destroyed his body as he did this you know night after night after night but like that was the same match over and over and over again so like the people who really cared about like match quality were sometimes called like smarks, smart marks, you know, like uh, discerning, quote-unquote, wrestling fans, never liked Hogan because his matches weren't very good, whereas Randy Savage was an excellent worker, and he's one of the best sellers in wrestling history in the sense that when it comes to, like, you know, showing pain and being able to make other people's moves look good, his facial expressions, his body language, the way he'd move around the ring were just incredible. So, like, one of the, the, the classic, not the modern, but the classic... Uh, candidates for greatest match of all time would be Ricky Steamboat versus Randy Savage at WrestleMania 3 in 1987. Just a phenomenal match, back and forth, lots of false finishes, etc., etc. Um, and so, he, Macho Man is held up today in a way that Hulk Hogan isn't because he had all the personality and the charisma, but he could also work his socks off in the ring in ways that Hogan could never dream of. But were they like? I often, I also got the impression, just occasionally, that maybe they actually liked each other when they were doing promos and kind of gimmicking around and just stuff that I've read in this book and other places as well. Well, I think, I think they they did have those moments of genuine friendship. But when it came time to hate Hogan, very few people hate Hogan as much as Randy Savage did. Oh, we'll um, get there. And and when um, when Randy Savage was uh, posthumously inaugurated into the Hall of Fame and Hulk Hogan did it. Like a lot of people were like, there's absolutely no way that Randy Savage would want this. That he thought Hogan was a scumbag. Wow. But throughout the WCW years, Randy Savage kind of 
I think he he made his peace to some extent with the idea that like his position was to be uh, number two to Hogan and that he'd rather be number two rather than squash down elsewhere. And so like there was a lot of, you know, when Hogan got to WCW, which is in, in the mid nineties, like he had creative control built into his contract so he could just do whatever he wanted. And of course that let his ego go into like, you know, that's where you really saw the dark mania of his psyche. And he didn't take care of Macho Man very well at all. Uh, <laughs> but he was all like, he was always there and he was always prominently featured, but it was, it was like very, very clear that like this guy is not at, at my level brother. But I think Macho Man just accepted that and went along with it. There's some, there's some like shocking examples of that uh, in, from the mid-90s WCW. He talks about the Ultimate Warrior as well. I, I, presume, I presume he never really liked him, did he? Um, I don't think so. I think, I think Ultimate Warrior was generally just, uh, you know, perceived to be a massive shithead by almost everyone. There's very few people who, outside of like, you know, kids who enjoyed, you know, his charisma at the time who have anything good to say about Jim Helwig, the man behind the Ultimate Warrior face paint. Um, Hogan's was he, like, was he actively Hogan's... trying to hurt people and stuff? Was that part of him, part of his? No, he wasn't like that. He was just like, he was, uh, he had a very, very, very high um, sense of himself, like a massively inflated ego. He wasn't a very good wrestler either. Um, and so he would often, he might hurt people, but more through clumsiness rather than, uh, you know, malevolence or anything like that. But it's just like, he was just a very bad wrestler. He was gigantic. Um, he would often get very, very tired very quickly. Part of the gimmick was that he would run out to the ring with his kind of uh, energetic rock theme song and shake the ropes and all this kind of stuff. But by the time it was time for the bell to ring and the match to start, he was gassed out of his brains and exhausted. So then you couldn't really rely on him to, as the wrestlers would often say, like, take care of you, you know, right? like, like protect your body. Um, but I think it was mainly just like, you know, he would drive a hard bargain backstage at awkward and unprofessional moments. Like, you know, he, there was a famous story in the early nineties, I think it was 92 where like he held up Vince for um, an inflated payday. Like, so it's like, you know, he's about to go out there and do a match and he says, I'm not going out there unless you give me another 200 grand. Hmm. Um, and he was fired for that, but then he brought back, he was kind of one of these guys that like committed unforgivable sins but then got got a pardon and then committed another unforgivable sin and and then got a pardon and all this kind of stuff but hogan brought him back in the in the nwo years of wcw because hogan did the job for him in the toronto sky dome in 1990 at wrestlemania 6 so then he had to get his win back brother and he brought him back and they had one of the worst matches of all time uh, at wcw halloween havoc 1998 where hogan tried to do a fireball into ultimario's face but it just uh, went into his own face and burnt his own mustache off. <laughs> and there was an amazing moment as well where Ultimate Warrior was trying to do like what's called a log roll, where you just roll on the mat to trip over Hulk Hogan. But Ultimate Warrior was too exhausted and he just like, he rolled just incredibly slowly and then Hulk Hogan just had to fall down. It's so <laughs> awful. Uh, truly, that's one really worth going out of your way to watch because it sucks so bad. And again, like I said, Dave Meltzer, who's been kind of like the the wrestling journalist, uh, like the wrestling journalist since the early 80s, he gave it uh, minus five stars. Truly <laughs> um, sucks. There's a chapter that next where Hogan is talking about making 
the incredible movie Suburban Commando and they needed someone to play an alien bounty hunter and he calls up a fellow by the name of Mean Mark Calloway and this proves to be, well, according to Hogan anyway, this is the entrance into a wrestling history of the guy who would become The Undertaker, of course. Yeah, such bullshit. Like, he was already, <laughs> is that complete nonsense? Yeah, he was, like, he was already uh, hired by WWF at that time. And he hadn't debuted as The Undertaker yet, but it was kind of in the pipeline. You know, they were developing the character, doing sketches for the, the costume and, and all this kind of stuff. But this is just like classic Hogan, you know, like how, what angle can I possibly put on anything where I can claim that I, you know, found someone? Like he loves this idea that, you know, instead of being someone who was a very Machiavellian political manipulator to make sure that he stayed on top, instead he was actually a benevolent um, you know, kind of person who had a keen eye for talent and wanted to bring people up and was generous with his, you know, spot or whatever, which is all just absolute garbage. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the, the beginnings of the Undertaker character. Mark Calloway is his real name. He was wrestling as mean Mark Callis. He had done some shots in WCW and in uh, down in Dallas, Texas for WCCW. And he would go on to have what a lot of people consider to be the greatest kind of gimmick um, career of all time in the sense that the Undertaker gimmick was so strong and he held so firm to it. And he's only kind of broken kayfabe in the last 12 months or so. Oh, really? And yeah, now he's doing lots of media because uh, he's now finally retired and now he's doing lots of media um, as himself in his kind of actual persona. Hmm. And turns out that he's a Blue Lives Matter Trumpy Oh, good. Just, just like absolute case of, you know, don't meet your heroes. It's like, I much preferred it when you were an underhead zombie mm. rather than talking prior, about Prior to that, was he seen as a fairly um, reliable professional wrestler? Yeah. Like the thing about Undertaker was that like there's the, a lot of stuff got kind of built up around him. I've never heard uh, of any scandal he was in. I've never heard of a, any feud, real life feud behind the scenes kind of. Yeah, so I think that's partially because he protected himself, obviously, and, and didn't kind of like let anyone see behind the curtain. But also, he developed such tenure that he became like an authority figure in the locker room that like just he got to call the shots and everybody did what he said. And because he was such an impressive wrestler and such an impressive character, it's kind of like you don't take a shit on The Undertaker, even was if he, he is... Friend, was he close to Vince? Because usually oh, yeah, get what they want in their locker room or, or close to Vince. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's rock solid with Vince, um, still even, even to this day. Yeah, even to this day. Um, and so, like they they would do this thing called wrestler court, where if people were fighting with each other or something, uh, or if someone was perceived to be like behaving badly on the road or anything like that, they would have like um, you know uh, a prosecutor and a and a defense lawyer or whatever, and then all the wrestlers would be the kind of the the, ju- the not not so much the jury but the to be there as uh, observers and Undertaker was always the judge in wrestler court. Wow. So it's like he was kind of, again, he had that tenure and, and everybody respected him or at least they pretended to respect him. And he was like seen as this massive, uh, like what would you call it? Custodian of all these, I don't know, I think completely pointless uh, wrestler traditions. Like you have to give the limp handshake and you have to carry people's bags who you know who are senior to you and uh, all, all that includes a lot of hazing and stuff doesn't it a lot of yeah so under uh, i think undertaker loves all that and he made like sure that it always happened bag. well that's just what you do when they're the new guy haha <laughs> suck it up 
Yeah, exactly. And so like the big thing is like if, if you're a new wrestler and you come into the locker room and you don't go around and shake everyone's hand or if you don't, let's say, go and shake the Undertaker's hand in particular or you don't go introduce yourself to senior kind of wrestlers, well, then everybody else is going to punish you then for that faux pas or whatever. Yeah. And so like I think partly out of, again, like the legitimate respect of Undertaker's like pretty phenomenal 30-year career in the ring, but then also the fear of like the power that he could um, wield within the locker room made it so that just like he became a figure beyond reproach. Well, he but sounds days, like a prime guy Hogan would, would, you know, have beef with or, or be scared of, or would try some dirty, dirty tricks on. I, I don't know. Their, their paths kind of never really crossed in a way where like, you know, they, he was a big time threat. So like Undertaker comes in, at the end of 1990, the next year, Hogan does the job to him and gives him the belt, but then beats him again a couple of days later. So like, you know, he does business with him as it were. And then Undertaker is kind of like, he's, a, he's on a different tier because for most of his career, he's this type of character that like either doesn't need the belt to be over or it just doesn't make sense for him to be chasing a belt. You know, like he's yeah. this undead zombie. Like, first of all, it makes no sense for him to be wrestling at all. He's an undead zombie, but like, let's when he say, was American badass briefly and have briefly. And <laughs> Hogan had a little feud with him when he came back after the, you know, the match with the rock in the early two thousands, they had a, and Hogan actually dropped the title to the undertaker in 2003. So I think, you know, they probably respect and like each other at least a bit, but again, it was like by the time undertaker was seeking to cement himself as the absolute top dog or whatever, or at least, you know, in the shout for that, Hogan was either not in the con- uh, company or was just back in for kind of, you know, fleeting moments here and there. Um, but but now, like, I just saw, I don't know when this will go out, but uh, just yesterday, which would be January 20th, I saw that Undertaker has done Joe Rogan's podcast. So. Oh, I won't be listening to that. <laughs> nope. I'm, I'm sure he's going to As we've like, said before, I think about probably about James Hetfield or somebody like, if you're going to out yourself as a, as a far-right dickhead, like Joe, Joe Rogan is the place to do it. Yep, sure gold is. standard. Yeah. I'm sure that Undertaker is like uh, very um, thoughtful and informed opinions about, you know, the, the mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania he, will be thoroughly a, questioned by Is Joe he a mayor Rogan. somewhere, or is that Kane? Kane is a mayor somewhere. Yeah, Kane is a libertarian hack. Total <laughs> oaf. And you know what's funny? Like, this is a real indictment on, um, on, on the wrestling business. Like, that for years and years and years and years, everybody, like, un- universally said Kane is the smartest person in the locker room. And then he uh, runs for mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, and he wins and everybody's like, ah, it makes sense. You know, he's the smart one. And it just turns out that like, he's now like a parlor is the only place on the internet where free speech can live. And, you know, talk about like the only thing that's wrong with, with, with Donald Trump is that his tweets are so occasionally uncouth. You know, so he's just, he's a total hack. And he's got that, like that very degraded, sim- like incredibly simplistic uh, version of libertarianism, which is, you know, the old government isn't the solution to your problems, it's the cause of your problems. It's like, that's not policy, that's a slogan. <laughs> um, looking at time and thinking ahead, what I think we might do is we might take a final topic from my running list here, which would be the, the steroids scandal um, <laughs> at this time, and then we, we cut it off there, and that would leave us for a third episode at some point, which would include 
such delights as the WWF's downturn in the 90s, Hogan deflecting to WCW, anything we want to say about Bischoff and the NWO, <laughs> Hogan's album, Hogan oh, yeah. uh, running for president, uh, oh. bitching about Vince Russo, uh, Hogan's dad's last words being, Hogan, go back out there and make wrestling great again, pr- pretty much. And then finishing up by flashing back to his match against The Rock, which was kind of like the opening it's like a book, the bookend for the book, if you like. So how does that sound? That sounds amazing. I think, that, I think because I think that would be enough for one episode rather than trying to squeeze it in. So that, that'll leave us finishing off here, our final topic with the steroids chapter. I'm going to read a few bits from this. It's not, it's not the shortest chapter in the book, but it's not. <laughs> he doesn't spend a tremendous amount of time talking about it either. He basically he like gets it out of the way in one chapter, like ripping off a bandage and then just never talks about it again. He says, by 1991, people were starting to learn that Hulk Hogan was human. Up until then, I'd been wrapped in this superhero mystique. People accepted it at face value when I told them to train, say their prayers, and take their vitamins. Vitamins, he'd probably say. Yeah, those were also called the demandments. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he called those the three demandments. Little by little, they found out that I did more than train and say my prayers. (laughs) <laughs> I like to drink beer and raise hell at night. Uh, and then he said, I probably started taking anabolic steroids in 1975, but at the time, every wrestler I knew took them. In fact, they were being used by athletes in every sport, baseball, football, hockey, right across the board. And you know, that's probably true at the time. Um, but he basically goes on and says, it was normal, everybody was doing it, but it was fine because it was legal and the doctors told us that it was harmless. And it's like, well, how come it was such a... Why was it a secret then? And why was it such a scandal? You know, he's trying to have both. He's trying to make out like this was completely fine and ordinary. Oh, but also we couldn't talk about it. Um, And he says, I'm 280 pounds now, but back then I weighed 330, 340 because my body was so full of water weight. My face was huge and puffy. My arms were so bulky. I couldn't touch my shoulders. Um, Some people say steroids cause personality changes. They didn't do that in my case. I didn't have fits of temper or anything like that. But he was always eating, he says, and he was always sweating. And um, basically the, the feds come down on this, uh, on the whole industry, but he thinks it's all about him personally. He's like, they could have gotten Lyle Alzando from the Oakland Raiders, who for all I knew was taking 10 times the amount of steroids I was, but no, Hulk Hogan was the most recognizable athlete entertainer in the world. So they put my neck on the chopping block. But the feds really wanted me. They wanted the money man, the boss, the brains behind the brawn. They wanted the guy who had made a name for himself as the Einstein of the wrestling business. So they, they dragged Vince into it. It was very unfair. And uh, he talks about the court case extremely briefly where um, Vince is basically left off the hook because Hogan doesn't dab him in by saying, no, Vince didn't force me to take steroids. Yeah, you know, he was very close to uh, testifying against Vince. He kind of pulled up the plane at the last minute. Oh, um, yeah. The, the big thing that he's doing there in, in terms of misrepresentation is that, you know, that the trial was about him. It, it wasn't. I mean, they wanted him as the superstar witness. And certainly if, if they had Hulk Hogan say, uh, you know, something incriminating about Vince on the stand, that would have done uh, the prosecution an absolute, you know, slam dunk kind of. They were giving them a slam dunk for the, uh, to get Vince. But really they wanted Vince. And like the way that the trial was put together is kind of weird. It was like, the, the kind of statutes that came in and when they came in regarding the illegality of steroids was like very bizarre. 
um, in ter- it was like 1988, something, something happened to make it kind of illegal. And then in 1990, something else changed. So like the statutes were, they weren't cut and dry, um, or at least as cut and dry as they would become later. And then when they went to try to put the, the case together, it was the federal government that tried to get Vince and they were really getting him on conspiracy to distribute steroids. So like the kind of the two things were, was he forcing the wrestlers who worked for him to take steroids? And then the other part of it was, did he distribute steroids to them? And so some of the evidence that they had was that uh, Vince's um, PA, like personal assistant, um, would put in some of the orders for the steroids and she had like Vince had a mini fridge next to his office where they would keep the steroids and she would put in like Vince would order for himself because Vince was a, a massive roid freak too. And for Hogan Now the rest of them had to get it from themselves. And then the big thing was that the, the government, they, they took a, um, a state case in Pennsylvania against uh, an athletic commission doctor there called uh, George Zahorian. And he was the one who actually got busted because he was, supplying the uh supplying the steroids to all the wrestlers they would go to him you know with a with a creaky toe or something <laughs> he he did make sure that they got jacked up one of the famous lines that came out of the court case was that like Zahorian said like look i'm in trouble the feds are breathing down my or not the feds the um the uh local police or whatever are breathing down my neck uh and i so i can't give you anything and then I think it was Pat Patterson or someone like, you know, in the kind of front office with Vince who said like, oh, come on, George, the boys need their candy. (laughs) Uh, But the big thing was that because it was the federal government that was after Vince, they needed to get some sort of, um, there was some sort of event where there were steroids trafficked across state lines. That's how it becomes like federal in jurisdiction. And so there was uh, an event at the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island, New York. Uh, And there was like a a delivery of steroids that came from out of state, I think from Connecticut, because that's where Stanford and uh, the WWF at the time headquarters was. And so, but they, they fucked up because it was like Hogan was supposed to be in the Nassau Coliseum to receive those steroids, but he didn't actually wrestle that day. So I, I honestly, what I would say to the listeners is if like, if you want to know the full details of this and some of it's a little bit kind of dull and then, but other parts of it are like unbelievably bizarre and hilarious as a window into just like the, the wrestling business and Vince at that time is that the, the lapsed fan wrestling podcast which is an outstanding wrestling podcast. They did an entire series on Vince's trial uh, where they even got their hands on the transcripts of the entire trial and read them all out as the characters in the voices <laughs> like ultimate warrior testified and Pat Patterson and Hulk Hogan and uh, a, a bunch of like complete buffoons, you know, like, like there's this wrestler called nails where he, he basically like, he got into a fight with Vince and threatened to try and beat him up and stuff. And then he went, he went and uh, testified for the federal government to say that Vince forced him to take steroids and stuff. And the, the defense lawyer for Vince, a guy called uh, Jerry McDivitt, was able to like, just like completely discredit Nails instantly by saying like, is it true that you had a fight with Vince McMahon? Yes. Is it true that you hate Vince McMahon? Yes. Would you say that you have a vendetta against him? I don't know what a vendetta is. Would you do anything to take him down? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like unbelievable stupidity. 
Uh, and the warlord, who's another kind of big bloated oaf from that Hulkamania era, he talks about how like, oh, he, he heard Vince saying this, that, the other. And they're like, were you in the room at the time? No. How did you hear it? I was down the corridor <laughs> <laughs> trying to listen in. Just all these carnies, you know, just like outing themselves as, as idiots. And so it's kind of like, did Vince take, you know, force all the wrestlers to take steroids? Like, you know, implicitly yes, explicitly no. Did, did Vince buy steroids and take them himself and also make sure that there was a, su- a ready supply for Hogan? Yes. Did Vince traffic those uh, steroids across state lines so that Hulk Hogan could take them? Almost certainly. But just Sean O'Shea, who was the federal prosecutor, I think it was in the, one of the districts in, in New York, wherever, whatever um, federal uh, uh, district that Long Island is in, they, Sean O'Shea, the prosecutor, just didn't manage the case very well. And Jerry McDivitt, who is still Vince's lawyer, so he goes back to around this time period, the early 90s, and he's still, like, he's, he's vicious. Like, he's, he's like kind of an Alan Dershowitz, like, I'll take on anyone for my, for my client and make sure that they, they go down in flames. Uh, so it's just like a very badly managed trial. But it's just, like, Hogan, when he got off the steroids in the early 90s, he looked like a completely different person. And he's not lying in the book there when he says that his face was uh, like bloated by the steroids. Like his head in the 80s was massive. And then by the early 90s, he has this thin kind of gaunt face. And at one stage in, in maybe 94 in WCW, 95 maybe, he shaves off his mustache for a shitty movie that he did. And you can see even more how gaunt his face was without all the water weight. But later on in the 90s, he got back on the, on the gas big time. He puffed up to ginormous levels again. And again, the cheeks were puffed out. So, But it is true that everybody was doing it. But again, this is kind of part of the, you didn't have to take them. But if you knew it was good for you, you know, like if you look at the people who got on top, with the exception of some like really, really tall fat dudes, if you weren't really tall, uh, you kind of couldn't be really fat or, or skinny. Is, like, is that what Lance Henriksen said? You know, if everyone's doing it, you have to. Or if, if there's a culture within a sport, I'm not yeah. defending it. I'm just like, that's what they always say and it's not untrue. Yeah, I, 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 I think so. have to start somewhere by getting the rot out, so, you know. Yeah, and then like the kind of the, after the steroids became this, this scandal, um, and Hulk Hogan was kind of like, he was uniquely vulnerable to this because he had to take your, take your uh, vitamins and, and train and say your prayers and drink your milk. And like, he was kind of like the all-American good guy. And then if he's doing this thing, which is perceived popularly to be cheating, you know, or to be uh, impure or unclean, like he has a lot to lose from that. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about steroids in, in wrestling in particular is that they, they, they go through, this is a, a, a pun intended here, they go through cycles where just like at some, sometimes people care that everybody's on steroids and other times just like nobody cares. So like right now, if you were to watch a wrestling show, you will see bodies that are not possible to be achieved without anabolic assistance. It's just a fact. Um, but nobody gives a shit. Whereas let's say after Chris Benoit did the double murder-suicide of his family, in 2007, everybody cared about steroids for a couple of years, you know, because Benoit was steroided out of his mind when, when he did that kind of stuff. And the same way Vince cares briefly when Hogan gets outed for doing something racist and then lets him back in a few years later, like. Exactly. Once the, <laughs> once the kind of the media cycle moves on to something else, yeah. it's just Ho- Hogan will be there with his, you know, 
He, he opens up the door and the Fu Manchu cracks through. <laughs> brother, brother. So, right. I, again, what I would say is the full story for the, for the particularities of the steroid trial is there for the, the LAPS fan. We'll have that covered, but there's just a, a general broad overview. Send, send that on to me and I'll, I'll put a link for anyone who's interested. Will do. All right. Um, so we've heard already what might be coming next. Um, such delights. What did we say? So the, the end of, uh, or the downturn in the 90s of the of the dub. Uh, Hogan going to WCW, NWO, um, Eric Bischoff, Vince Russo, uh, shitty albums, <laughs> fake presidency runs, all sorts of great things still to come. So hopefully you'll join us for part three. The, the Vince Russo and Booker T story is really, really something. So that will be fun. I'm excited for that. <laughs> okay, thanks, Don. Cheers, Ken. Always a pleasure. That's it for this episode, folks. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I reckon we'll be back to our regular beat next episode, tackling something mysterious or spooky. So you are safe from Mr. Hogan for now, safe from the Hulkster for, for the immediate future but we will be returning to him of course at some point for episode three so keep an eye out as always we like to hear what you think so get in touch on twitter we are at strange ireland on instagram as always we are wide atlantic weird podcast so until next time stay safe and thanks very much for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this Unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.